The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. go through our lives without ever being truly challenged. Some seek out obstacles for themselves, but others have them thrust into their path and discover aspects of themselves they cannot have imagined. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and vitamin salesman, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's symposium concentrates on Silver Streak, a 1976 comedy adventure starring Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, Jill Clayburgh, and Patrick McGowan. My guest is bibliophile and connoisseurs Emmanuel Ausquay, and you join us in my parlour in the January depths. Hello, Manuel. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Well, the first film that uh, we watched together for the podcast was a jovial story of prisoners of war and masculinity under stress and uh, torture. So I thought we'd go somewhere a bit different with the second one. A bit. And have a really fun comedy adventure in which a guy blacks up. <laughs> yeah, that was completely different, yeah. I agree. <laughs> so what did you think of Silver Streak? Uh, not my cup of tea. Definitely oh. not. Um, I see. <laughs> sorry, I, I don't know if, if you really enjoyed it. It's really... Um, I had to watch it in two different sessions. Okay. Um, not because I didn't have enough time. It's just like, I can't get through this. Oh, okay. <laughs> take a break and go to work and carry on the next day. So you decided to work as a, like a, a relaxing break from watching this film? Well, I thought I would have a working day in between two evenings where I watched it. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not... I don't know, I didn't feel... Um, I don't think it has aged well in terms of uh, the, ac- the action scenes, for example. Okay. So I thought maybe on that one... No, I wasn't bored necessarily, but I thought it was not as engaging as some action films, maybe, that I would have watched. Um, There were some funny lines, some funny dialogue lines that probably kept me going, and I was looking for those nuggets of dialogues, and that's what kept me through. (laughs) Um, And I I like the... At the end, I thought there was tension just at the very end where and they're on the train and the train is about to hit Chicago. Yeah. And I think that was the highlight. And that was it. Um, there were some really cringing and embarrassing moments. And I thought, should I carry on or not? <laughs> but I thought, you know, for the sake of your podcast, I would carry on watching it. Um, Thank you, you're very kind. <laughs> you made me go through this. What did you think about it? I'm curious. I thought it was great. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't... It was actually a lot better than I remembered. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So um, you've watched it many times. Yeah. Um, I remember Silver Streak as being like a staple weekend afternoon film. That it was like always be on like three o'clock on, on a Sunday okay. afternoon. And it was just something I remembered really well from when I was young. I thought, I wonder how that film looks now. Okay. Uh, and I think it is, it is a film of its time. It is a very much a film of the mid-70s. But for what it is, I think it stands out really well. Okay. I'm really surprised because I'm thinking if you've, if you've seen it when you were younger and you want to see it now, maybe you feel a bit nostalgic and you remember liking it when you were younger. But actually with hindsight now, you're thinking, mm, maybe not that great. But actually, you enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you tell me in broad terms what the story is? So the story is about that guy who um, is traveling, George, sorry, let's call him George, uh, who seems really naive and wants to take his time and is traveling aboard a train called the Silver Street going to Chicago to, Chicago, to his sister's wedding. And uh, he's decided to take the train instead of flying because he wants to be bored. I remember him being saying that and you're like, ha ha, you don't know what's waiting yeah. for you. Um, and along the way, uh, there's a murder. Oh, he meets a girl first. Um, and he didn't really want to meet that girl particularly. But uh, she's quite pushy, isn't she? Uh, and you're thinking, are you there to just get a guy? Uh, anyway, they the first night they end up... Um, oh no, she's on the, 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 the opposite uh, side of his cabin. So they end up in the same bed the first night. Um, and that's when he witnesses a murder. And uh, the guy being murdered is actually the boss of that girl called Hilly. And uh, so then he's trying to figure out You know, who murdered that guy? Is he really dead? He doesn't seem to be dead because he appears out of, you know, somewhere. Um, he's thrown off the train as well a couple of times by the baddies who killed that guy. Um, and he manages to get back on the train a couple of times, which I, which I thought was, a, you know, quite a, a good achievement. Mm. Uh, and along the way, along being, you know, in between being, being thrown off of train, uh, he meets that thief called what's his name again Grover Ro Rover Grover Grover okay so he meets Grover um, who's a thief but actually who turns out not to be that bad because uh, he helps him you know get back on the train and and find the girl again and make sure that the the lady's safe um, and that's that <laughs> and that's that and that's that <laughs> yes pretty much oh, do you want me to tell the end as well Well, we'll get to the end. Okay. We'll, we'll sort of go through it in a bit more detail, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, um, George is played by Gene Wilder, who by this point in his career was becoming a, a major star. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. He uh, had been Oscar nominated for his first major role in The oh. Producers. He became one of Mel Brooks's in a circle. He starred in Blazing Saddles which was co-written by Richard Pryor. Okay. And then he wrote Young Frankenstein, which came out the same year as Blazing Saddles, and he was Oscar nominated for writing Young Frankenstein. So two years later, he does this, and this is kind of his first Hollywood movie. Okay. The first one that's kind of much more of a mainstream picture. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a time where someone who looks like Gene Wilder could be the romantic lead in a action movie. 
Yeah, I don't see him being a great actor for some reason. I don't think it was the role of his life. <laughs> no, because George is a very... He's, he's supposed to be a very normal, ordinary, quite dull person who over the course of the movie discovers he's got the capability to do all these things, but to, I don't to be brave and to be romantic and all that changing, stuff. Changing, because I don't know. And I, as a character, yeah, of course, because so many things happen to him, so he has to adapt, but I... Uh, I don't know, physically he doesn't change or I don't see anything on his face that... For me, he had a mask all, all along the film. I mean, I know at the beginning that you see him, you know, with his, um, his, his head in his hand and just looking outside the window on the train and, and figuring out what life is like for him um, and, and looking quite romantic. And then later on in the car, you, when he's with Grover, you see him with his cigarette, you know, just yes. hanging out of his mouth and you're thinking, you look exactly the same. <laughs> Except instead of having, now you have a cigarette hanging out of your mouth. <laughs> and I don't know, it didn't feel like, he wasn't convincing for me really. And no. I was so, so surprised. Has he got mascara on his eyes or anything? That could just be the makeup. Uh, the eyeliner. Oh, that really disturbed me. I wanted to get rid of that eyeliner oh. so much. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't take it seriously. He did actually come from a, a quite prestigious stage background. Oh, right. Um, and he worked on the producers because he'd been in a play with Mel Brooks's wife, Anne Bancroft, who was a major, serious actor who was doing plays on Broadway. And, and he was a supporting player in one, of her, in one of her productions. And she recommended him as having this kind of tightly wound energy that was right for his, his character and the producers. Okay. And he and Mel Brooks really hit it off. And he's really great in those three Mel Brooks pictures. Um, as an accountant who dreams of being a stage producer, as <laughs> Frankenstein's great-grandson, and as a failed gunfighter in Blazing Saddles. Well, he's a failed romantic in here. No, I don't know. Actually, he isn't. Because yeah, he, he, he defeats the bad guy. Easily. Yeah, yeah. The he, feds come for him and give him a gun. He gets, <laughs> he gets the girl at the end, and he becomes like a, a much more rounded person, I think, over the course of the movie. It also harks back, I think, a lot to Alfred Hitchcock. The train as the, oh, the okay. setting of suspense is mm-hmm. very Alfred Hitchcock. The ordinary man suddenly caught up in this uh, situation and mistaken for someone important. Um, and the, the kind of suspense and action set pieces all feel very Hitchcock- Hitchcockian, like the, the repeated train top chases, the whole bit with the... Um, the sheriff where... Oh, yeah, The, yeah, the yeah. idiot sheriff. The idiot that, sheriff, yeah. That George overpowers just by grabbing his gun straight yeah. out of his hand. <laughs> Easy enough. Anybody could have done that. And it's just a, a gag at how incompetent this guy is. <laughs> well, you could see it from the very moment he meets him. It's just like, bang, bang, looking at the TV, playing Indian and cowboy, really. Yeah. So you could see, you see the level, and he, when he says, oh, we've never had a murderer, a murderer here, um, that he's not competent enough to deal with that case. But I thought it was like a, for me, it's a it's a road movie on a train. All um, right. In that sense that they're trying to get somewhere, and along the way, things happen. It, it's it's almost like a not like a western, obviously, but in some instances, it felt like that as well. Like if it was a wagon train. Maybe. Yeah. But also towards the end, where the train becomes a runaway and they have to evacuate Chicago Station, it turns into a disaster movie. Yeah. Which obviously was huge in the mid seventies. Oh, okay. We had the the Tarot Inferno and the Poseidon Adventure and all these big spectacles. It's kind of the the uh, 
the link between the old Bible movies of the 50s and the modern blockbuster. They have these visual effects spectacles of buildings on fire and ships oh, yeah, sinking. the slow motion of the yeah. train entering the station. I love that. <laughs> but, it's, but it's not models. That's all life-size. Oh, wow. It's, it's a, it's, I don't think it's a real train, but it's certainly the size of a real train. And yeah, really smashing up that set. At the end, when you, when you see them you know, in front of the, of the, of the, in front of the train... It, it really looks like as if they just had one scene and they didn't cut it particularly. No, because they want to make it look... Mm-hmm. They, they could only smash up the set once, so... Mm. I thought that was well done. I thought that, was, that the end was the, probably the, the one which was most convincing for me and the most engaging. When they actually go back on the train and manage to uh, kill Devereaux. Mm. And... and in, in the end, yeah, managed to kill the bad guy. And even if you're thinking, oh, they've reached the end because they've killed the bad guy, there's still that, uh, you know, that, that threat of the train going into yeah. the station. So it's not quite finished. And I thought that was quite good. So maybe the last 15 minutes are the best of the film, I would say. So I'm glad I watched it until the end. And I made the effort to watch it until the end. <laughs> I'm glad you, you tried really hard to watch <laughs> this very lightweight film all the way through. <laughs> and starting off, the film has two distinct musical themes. Oh, yeah. That's sort of the, the, the train theme, which really feels like train music. Yeah. So it has that rhythm that goes like that. And the romantic theme, which... Oh, the, the piano. Which the characters just listen to on the radio. <laughs> I thought that was, the piano was a bit ridiculous. I thought, I don't know why. It felt um, over-romanticised. I didn't buy it at all. But I... Is it Henry, is it Henry Mancini who wrote the music? Yeah. And when I saw that on the at the beginning of the credits, I was like, oh, great, it's going to be a great score. And it's true, you could, maybe because I knew he wrote the music, so I paid attention to it. But um, apart from the piano stuff, which I really... Not the music in itself, but how they used it, I mm. thought I, I just didn't A like. bit too syrupy for me. Um, comp- yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially when... I mean, maybe the first time when they meet and, he's got, and she's got that on the radio and he said, oh, whenever I think about that music, I'll think of you fine, you go, you know, one-liner, blah, yeah. blah, blah. You can see that he's getting into her, but he's not really thinking about seeing her again. He was just going to think about the, this music and, and associate it to her. But then when he comes back on the train and, and, tu- and the radio is there, everything's gone, but the radio, and he turns it on, and magic, that piano, that piano theme. Well, maybe it's, it's like the train railway, st- the train radio station, and it just plays that one song, because that's the only record they have. <laughs> Yeah, maybe like in, like in one of the carriages, there's a DJ in a tiny little booth. <laughs> yeah, and they can only have like one tiny little seven-inch record, and it's got the same track on both sides. Oh yeah, the records. You're right. That was the time. <laughs> or eight-track tapes. <laughs> so the train sets off um, from Los Angeles, and George is in the bar on the train, and he gets chatting to a guy called Bob Sweet. Oh yes. Who's a multivitamin salesman? Yeah, <laughs> not that job. <laughs> Played by another Oscar nominee. Oh, okay. Ned Beatty. I quite like that character actually. I like the the way he. At first, you think that oh god, this guy is awful. He's this yeah. horrible buffoon. He's talking about just shacking up with a woman and just yeah. staying in his carriage the whole way. But it turns out. No, actually, that whole thing is just a front. Yeah, he's just a front. He's, he's I think me- he was he's meant to be that awful. Yeah, he was too. Too, too much of a caricature to be true, probably. I don't know. I didn't... For me, he was the... He was the goofy guy of the film. 
until he turns until it turns out that, yeah, like, that he's actually that a, he's a fed yeah, yeah federal agent yeah but poor him he ends up dying yeah instead of George so he he saved George's life when you think about it well he's a public servant that's what they're supposed yes, to do true it's like yeah. bin men stand in the line of fire oh completely yeah same 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 service right yeah they they do the dirty jobs so we don't have to <laughs> but he I thought he was a good yeah coming back I didn't I think I probably in my first summer at the beginning, I probably didn't talk about him, but he's he's a good... Yeah, I liked him. He, he serves an important plot function because yeah. he's the one who gives George all the information about who Devereaux is and why he's such a bad guy. Because mm-hmm. Devereaux, it turns out, is it's like one of the most pointlessly evil characters in films. He's a mass killer. He He's a mass murderer, but he kills people only to protect his own art supply of, of all the art fraud that he's yes. been committing. He, yeah. He's got. He's too much of a high profile, to, you know, to take any fall. So yeah. he would rather kill a hundred people on a plane, rather than admit that. Yeah, no, sorry, that's not the the right painting. <laughs> and he's played by another great actor, Patrick McGowan. A very British accent, uh, in, in the middle of the film. Um, Irish, born in New York. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that was like, mm, sounds very British to me. Did it sound British to you, or it's it's kind of a transatlantic accent? It does. Oh, okay. It does sound a lot more British than anyone else. Yes. Yeah, it sounded very posh. So maybe I thought that's why, or maybe the way he was dressed as well. You know, with his three-piece suit and oh yes, and, and the tie and and the the, the silver suit as well, um, and the way he's always sitting in his compartment and people come to him. He doesn't necessarily have to go to the others. Like a spider at the center of a web. Of a train, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, web oh, train. a web of a train. <laughs> yeah. And it goes around in circles. <laughs> um, Patrick McGowan, was, he was never a big movie star, but he was a big star on TV in okay. the 60s in the UK. He had a series called Danger Man, which was a, um, a spy action series. And he decided he, he became so successful in it that he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. He came up with a new show called The Prisoner which was about a spy who resigns from his job and is then kidnapped and taken to this secret village where everyone has numbers instead of names and uh, the authorities uh, want to know why he resigned, but he won't tell them. And it's this kind of strange allegory about individualism and control and surveillance. And this was broadcast at like 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. Oh, wow. Okay. And at the time, it was the most expensive TV show ever made and everyone hated it. Is it really bad? Because it sounds really interesting, actually, as it's, a plot. It's one of the greatest TV shows ever made. Oh, OK. Um, I, I doubt that anyone listening to this hasn't heard of it, but I wasn't sure whether or not you had. No, Because it was also quite not. big in France. Was it? Yeah. It's, okay. it's an amazing series. Um, no, sorry, the only thing I knew in France TV, in French, on French TV, coming from the UK, was uh, Mr Bean and Monty Python. So. Not uh, Le Ménage Enchanté. Oh, is it French? Is it British as well? We had our own version. Oh, we just right. made up completely new stories oh, okay. uh, and used the original pictures. Okay. Yeah, no. That way, coming back to the, the the TV series you were mentioning, sounds really. I mean, sounds really interesting. It was great, but it um, it had such a bad reaction that McGowan had to basically leave the UK. He was unemployable in the UK now. Okay. Because the prisoner had been. It was his idea. He was executive producer. He wrote and directed mm-hmm. a lot of the episodes, and he was the star. And the whole thing was just laid at his door. So he had to go to America mm. to kind of... Like reinvent himself yeah. and, and get a new career. So he, he worked a lot in America after that. And um, he was kind of a, a go-to, slightly sinister 
uh, English-speaking foreign type. So he was he played a lot of murderers, a lot of villainous characters, and this is a very stereotypical late career Maguan character. Okay. Where he's very charming and very urbane, but incredibly evil. Yeah, because on the one on the one hand he offers coffee and he said you need to try the marmalade on that train is delicious. But on the other hand, you know, he's ready to kill whoever is in his path, yeah. uh, even his associate. Um, so, yeah, you could you could see the the, the psychotic, you know, psychopath in him really, mm. um, serving his own interest only. Um, but I don't. There, so the, the 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 scene in the film where he's confronting George after George's come back for a third time on the train, he's confronting him. Um, and before Grover comes in and pretends to be um, the the wait the waiter on the train yeah. or how he calls him I can't remember but um, he he explains the whole plot and what he's done and I thought that the that dialogue line was terrible the fact that he was just giving away everything um, to us as well as the viewers like there's no there's no um, how to put it subtlety. Completely, and this it's not helping me as well to want to know what's happening just because everything is given to me on a plate. I see. I know it's not, it's an, it's an adventure film and you don't want to spend time on the plot. You know, it's not a John le Carré inspired movie, but uh, still I thought that was, I was so disappointed that he was giving everything away like this. Right. It's, it's a problem where you have a, a main character who's an outsider who then has to have things explained to them. Mm. How can you communicate that information in a way that feels natural and doesn't get in the way of the story? There's a great moment in North by Northwest, the Alfred Hitchcock film, mm -hmm. that, that this one borrows so much from, where the whole plot is explained by one character to the hero as they're walking across an airfield and we can't hear what they're saying. It's like, hey, no, well, let me tell you what it's all about. And you see them walking across as they get to the aeroplane and have to get on and says, oh, so that's what the whole thing is about. And, and I think, it doesn't matter. We all, all we need to know is what's the immediate stake? Mm -hmm. what's, what's, what, what do these characters have to do for the next step? And by that same token, the Rembrandt letters, all the way through the movie, are referred to as being this thing that's incredibly important that everyone's after. It's a MacGuffin, which is a thing Alfred Hitchcock coined. It's the thing in the movie that everyone is after that drives the plot of the movie, but the nature of which is totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's the, it's the secret microfilm that everyone wants. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's the thing that makes the film happen. And he burns the letters. And he burns the letters at the end. And you think you're always the value in that? <laughs> but because by this point, George is so deeply involved mm. in all of this, the MacGuffin isn't necessary anymore because George is pursuing it on his own. But, yes, so George and Hilly having met over... Having accidentally met when he burst into her oh, yeah. carriage while she's in her underwear. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in a, of course, yeah. Of course she has to be in her underwear. <laughs> but he's, he's very apologetic and he's trying to close the door, but the door won't close properly. And, um, she doesn't seem phased out. She seems like... Oh yeah, somebody in my room already. The she, train hasn't even started yet. She's a modern woman. <laughs> she, I mean, I'd rather a, you know an, a nice apologetic man like George would have burst in than someone like Bob Sweet. Oh yes, true. Who yeah. would just stand there staring. <laughs> 
Um, they have dinner together. They go back to her cabin. And as you say, you know, they're all kissing and cuddling. And suddenly a dead body dangles in front of the window and falls off the train. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, the, the film has just started. Is there a murder already? Okay, so we don't know anything in, back, in the background of what's happening. And that's it, a murderer. Yeah. So some, something's been done. I have to try and read my own notes at this point. <laughs> Go ahead. The following morning, mm-hmm. um, the, you see the camera. There's actually a really beautiful shot of just the train moving across the landscape. And the camera just moves in and in and in and in until, oh, maybe, we, until we see George standing looking out of the window. Maybe, that thought it, maybe that's why I thought it was quite Western sometimes, because you've got these large landscape mm. um, shots. It does a really good job of showing off the landscape that the train's moving through. And what's incredible is all those train scenes were not shot in America. Oh, really? They couldn't get permission to film with trains on American railways. So it's not really the Silver Street? Does it even exist? No, there's no such thing as the Silver Street. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I think it was like a real thing. No, no, no. Oh, okay. I quite like the idea. (laughs) It's um, all the uh, train location material was filmed in Canada. Ah, uh, hence the snow and the mountains and all that. Yeah. Okay. I thought the beginning was shot probably in South America because you can see all the cacti. You know, in, in the night you've got that, the, those shots as well. The night shots where you can see the outlines of all the of all the vegetation and I thought it really looked like South, South not South America but the southern part South, of the South north. California. Yeah. That would have been Mojave Desert which is something that's come up a lot in the podcast in the past. Um, and there could have been some shooting there like the, and the, the very beginning of the film is filmed at Los Angeles Union Station and there's bits at the end that were filmed at Chicago Station mm-hmm. but all the active scenes involving the train uh, had to be filmed in Canada okay it seems convincing enough to be North America but it's strange that they didn't get I mean with all this land available in the US they didn't find one piece of land that it was the train company <laughs> It was the, the train operator wouldn't let them do it because they said that it was it would give their their company a bad name. Okay, I see. Well, I'd rather take the plane through in the US because it's quicker. But still, I don't know. I don't think that anything like that could happen anyway. So it wouldn't have given them a bad name necessarily. It's being associated with it though. I think they're they're worried about public image. Okay. They tend to worry about things like that. And this, the Canadians work really fine. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah, just, just yeah. come over here, eh? You just put your camera down. That's it. <laughs> but uh, that morning, as George is just pottering around the cabin, he looks at the back of the book that written by Hilly's boss, and the picture on the back is a picture of the man who was killed. Mm, and he recognises him straight away. If you saw a dead body dangling off the roof of the train. I guarantee that his face would be seared into your mind, <laughs> at least until but the then, following day. Uh, I don't know, the, the point of view is different, because he was lying on a bed and, and this body appeared on his window, upside down, with a shot in the head, so it might have been a bit disfigured. Uh, and then he sees that picture at the back of the book, black and white picture, portrait, probably the guy looking, you know, friendly, because you want to buy it in his book, so you've got to look all right mm-hmm. on the picture. And I was surprised that he recognises him straight away. And he's like, oh, you know, it could, have, it could have had a bit of a doubt. I don't know. Um, well, maybe, but you have to make allowances for the fact that it's a movie. 
turn. Yeah, yeah. And then the letters are in there, straight away. But the most precious thing is in the book of the secretary laying on, you know, some bedside table. Well, I think that's, that's a nice little double bluff, that we see the thing that everyone's after straight away, but we mm. don't know what the significance is. And the thing that's so precious is just concealed in plain sight. Yeah. And then he just drops the book, you know, with negligence in his suitcase, like, pff, yeah, yeah, whatever. But he doesn't know that it's going to be a precious item later on. Um, there's, a, there's a scared Hispanic woman. I can't remember what she was so upset about. I assume that she was Spanish. Okay, yeah, probably right. Los Angeles, starting from Los Angeles. Oh yeah, because he burst. So when they come back from dinner, he's got a bottle of champagne with two glasses and he bursts into her cabin uh, because the, there's this uh, morbidly obese guy who tries to get past him and he's pushed into that berth. That oh yes. Berth. And so she she just shouts rape, rape, rape. And then throughout the... It, it comes back later on towards the end of the film, doesn't it? And she's still really upset with him. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, So he's mistaken for a rapist and an assassin for him. He does kill one guy though. He does, and we'll get to that because I like the way that that's portrayed. Okay. But, um, uh, George tries to get to, um, the, uh, the professor's cabin when uh, he's interrupted by a huge man oh reese reese yeah with the not so attractive dental work i like that line i thought it was funny well that's richard keel who would play jaws in the next two james Bond yeah, films yeah, yeah. The Teeth. and <laughs> reese slightly overreacts to george's investigation by immediately throwing him off the train completely that was i was a bit taken aback i didn't think about that that was going to happen so quickly um and I don't know, uh, maybe the, the tension didn't build up for me. So when, he's, when he was thrown off the train, it feels like as if he's just stepped off to a station, in a way. I didn't think it was the end of the world, or I didn't, I didn't see it as, as a problem, just because there was no tension built up before that, in a way. I was like, okay, fine. And he, and he shouts, son of a bitch, when he's off the train, right? A couple yeah, of times. every single time. Oh, every single time, okay. <laughs> Well, we've got several elements. We, we've got a dead body, we've got people searching the dead man's cabin, and we've got a witness to the murder having been thrown off the train. And so, that lady's still on the train. And the lady's still on the train and may be in danger. So George just starts walking along the line, following along the train. <laughs> Thinking, where are you going to end up? That, don't you want to do a recce first before going anywhere? He's definitely an urban guy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, with his shoes, his precious shoes as well. Oh, God, you know, when he starts walking, I'm thinking, you want to get rid of those boots first. And then he ends up in meeting that lady in the farm. The farm in the middle of nowhere. With a, And she's a pilot as well, isn't she? Yeah, well, she's she, first she gets George to milk a cow. And he can't do it. And he can't do it because he is, as you say, a very urban guy and mm. doesn't know how. I thought that scene was a bit appalling. <laughs> Sorry. Like, why do you want us to watch that he can't milk a cow? I could have told you that before. <laughs> yeah, so as I've written here, it's suddenly a film where a man tries to milk a cow. <laughs> but uh, she says that she'll give him a lift to the, the nearest station. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, great. And you see him sitting in her car, 
this horrible, rusty old car. Is that what are you sitting in that for? Get in, get in the plane. And he's a bit, you can see him, he's a bit sick, right? Because of all the motion and her trying to... Oh, poor sheep. I thought as well, that was so bad. Why do they have to do this? Like, scare the sheep away and that's fun? No, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, but I didn't like this either. Milk a cow. Okay, why not? And scare the sheep? Just for the sake of it? No. But um, they make it to the station and George runs off uh, and manages to, to, to grab on just as they're passing through. I thought that... I was like, lucky you. Oh yeah, it's a film. Okay, it's a film. Yeah, you have to get back on for the sake of the plot. <laughs> and he does get back on. But then I think that's when they start... Because she probably goes to talk to the, to the sheriff at that point, right? So that's when they start um, catching up with the story. When the fed, federal agents start catching up with the stories as well. No? I think or it, is it because Bob Sweet is on board? Well? It's, it's Bob Sweet's on board keeping an eye on things and mm. I think it's when um, George talks to him he's then able and also the, the very fat men are clearly also feds because they look so shifty all the time but um, he gets back he makes it in time for lunch and he has lunch with Bob Sweet um, and explains about what's happened I think mm-hmm. and um, who Roger and Bob tells him about Roger Devereaux. Yeah, and how he's involved into other murders as well. Is that when he talks to him about that? No, I think that's on the second time where he... Yeah. Yeah, it's the second time he's back on the train that Bob Sweet tells him everything. Um, and George, George follows Hilly back to her carriage and um, Deborah's with her and he apologises for the misunderstanding so Reese went out to try and look for you Um, and then the professor comes in that's when the fake professor yeah comes in Uh, and and as because Healy doesn't doesn't react that's when I thought oh she knows about it she's into this plot because even though he's a he could pass for a for the professor Somebody who works with him would know straight away that he's a fake. Well, she already knows that he's a fake because I think by this point, Devereaux has told her what's yeah, happening because yeah. she he needs her to play along. That's when I understood that she was into this and I'm thinking, yeah. is she playing a double game with George? You don't know? Well, that's that's the the nice thing is that, you know, I'll do so well, I must have, I must have just imagined it then. I, maybe, I, maybe I was imagining a lot of things last night. Mm. And you can see that he's clearly really hurt by this. He thinks that Hilly's betrayed him, and yeah, and so um, that he's been thrown off the train for nothing. Yeah, and that he was—he thought that she was in great danger when actually she wasn't. And maybe that she didn't even have any feelings for him at all. So Devereux asks, "You know, would you, would you like to join us for dinner, Mister Caldwell?" No, mm. I'll just eat on my own in my room. Oh, poor oh. George. And he does that. He does the big eyes. <laughs> um, so that he he goes and and then as soon as he's out the door, Devereux turns around and slaps Hilly across the face, and it's like right. That's a very sudden change of mood. Yeah, yeah. That's when you're thinking she's completely manipulated for her. She's in the middle. She doesn't know what to do. She wants to protect George clearly. Yeah. 
but um, she yeah she doesn't know how to how to react properly. Um, she's caught in the middle. That's I feel a bit sorry for her. I quite like her character, even if at the beginning I was thinking that she was just another blonde secretary. But um, her character is quite interesting, maybe. Maybe yeah. it's one of the best, probably. Uh. George um, George drinks at the bar and uh, gets talking to Sweet. And that's when Sweet tells him, yeah, I, I believe your story. I know that the professor's fake because um, he ordered whiskey early. Exactly. And he wouldn't because he's a health nut. Yeah, he's a... Uh, yeah, he's, he would because in the first scene as well, when George uh, meets in the first scene, in the first part of the movie, when George meets Hilly, she says that the professor or, or her boss is is already in his cabin uh, with probably a, a hot cocoa or I can't remember what, and probably in bed because he's a health nut. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's repeated. It's a, it's as if you were thinking, yeah, okay, I I did hear it the first time. Thank you. You don't need to say it again. You know, that's a bit too much. But hey, we got that for sure. So and his his real name is also Stevens, and he takes George into his mm. confidence, and they go up onto the roof of the train to look for evidence. Oh yeah, and he gets that piece of as a, as a piece of cloth stuck it, on the roof from above George's back. window. It doesn't come back afterwards, right? As a, as a proof to anything. But it what well, it George has someone who believes him, and there's evidence that there's something going mm. on. So that then gives him the, the um, the motivation, to think there's there's more to this. Yeah, true. It it gives him. Um, he probably realizes that he has he hasn't he hasn't dreamt it, and what he saw was real, um, and that he's now being man- manipulated. It's probably good for him though, for his uh, own self esteem. Yeah. <laughs> to realize that he was right. And also that Hilly wasn't just playing him the whole yeah. time, that, that she's involved with this, but she's being manipulated too. That's true. I forget about the relationship and how important that, he, that is for him that, that Hilly is honest with him. Yeah. Because he's, he's not a typical heroic type. He's all sort of soft and quiet and... and yeah, he's, no, he's, he's not he's, a hero. He's clearly definitely. a really sensitive person. So the idea that she was putting it on she, and she doesn't really have much interest in him, it, it clearly hits him really hard. And <laughs> Hence I, the nostalgic scene with the piano. Exactly. The piano song. <laughs> so, so that would have a big impact on his behaviour and his personality. I can't imagine that really happening now, in a, in, if you were to tell this kind of story in a, in a film today. Because the ma- the male lead would have to be much more tough and masculine and not so openly sensitive. Not necessarily. Maybe it wouldn't be shown into that really cheesy way with the with the piano song. Um, yeah. But um, but uh, Andrews explains that the professor was going to prove that paintings Devereux had certified were in fact fake. Yes. And were part of a scheme by Devereux to make millions uh, and the key the key being the Rembrandt letters whatever is written in them mm. um, oh, because the professor is supposed to give a lecture yes um, to present presenting his book and showing that the, the letter that the, the, the paintings are a fake and now you've got a fake professor who's going to deliver 
a different lecture and completely trash the professor's reputation yeah. and Devereux will be in the clear. Exactly. Um, and they mentioned the whole, um, the plane crash Devereux caused. A hundred people. A hundred people killed just to cover up his own yeah. art misdemeanors. In, in Germany. Or was it Germany? Yeah, it was in Cologne. Oh. I don't know how you say it in English. Cologne. Cologne. Cologne, okay. Like the aftershave. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where it comes from. Anyway. Um, but they, they go into a tunnel and there's a gunshot. And it turns out that Andrews has been shot. Stevens, uh, 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 rather, uh, uh. has been shot. Um, the, <laughs> the porter comes in, sees George with the dead body holding a gun, and goes, oh my God, he's a murderer. Yeah, but and once again, I think that scene, even though I think it could, have, it could have had a lot more tension and a lot more drama into it, um, I didn't feel particularly bad that he was now not only labelled as a rapist, but a murderer. I don't know. I didn't... But now he's on his own. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And um, Devereux's other henchman, Whiny, sees him and he's shocked that George is still alive because he thought he shot him. Um, he managed he's, he's like a cat with seven lives. Yeah. Uh, he he barricades himself in the freight car as Reese smashes his way in. Um, and George manages to drop his gun. But for some reason, all the way through the film, we're seeing these, these convention goers are on the train. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like cardboard cutouts of women in bikinis holding harpoon guns. And there's also some real harpoon guns. And he manages to pick one up. He picks one, he picks one up and escapes up onto the roof. Um, How do they manage to walk on the roof with the train going so fast? It's, uh, I mean, it's a film, obviously, but um, it seems they've got very good balance. And it's the real actors as well. Yeah. Um, I see that the train is going a bit, quite a bit slower than it normally would. I hope so. <laughs> um, maybe they've got magnets in their shoes. Maybe. <laughs> um, but there's a there's a scuffle and. Reese is about to shoot George, but George shoots him with the harpoon gun, and, and Reese falls over the side of a bridge to his death. And George's reaction is really interesting. He's just really appalled by what he's had to do, and he throws the, the gun away in disgust, mm. even though he had absolutely no choice. That was him or, or the other guy. Yeah. It was complete self-defence, that's for Abs- sure. Absolutely, but even then, he's just... He's disgusted by the idea that he's had to. I'm sure take that if we were in that situation, we would do that. Like I would probably throw somebody off the train if I felt in danger. Don't you think? But you wouldn't feel good about it, though. No, 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 definitely. But I, I think I would probably have the same reaction as George. Like feel disgusted with myself mm. that I that I managed to do that. But I think this is uh, not normal. But this is an expected reaction. Um, you know, when you when you see somebody pointing, at, I mean, I, I haven't been into that situation, obviously, but. I imagine that if I see somebody pointing a gun at me and I've got a gun as well, I'm going to be the one to try to fire first, right? Mm. So, so that's the end of Reese. Yeah. I hope the dental work is going to be used somewhere else. Yeah, in his next film. <laughs> yeah, it but um, George turns around and is immediately hit by a railway signal. I know. Which spins around <laughs> and he falls against he the slope and he falls across the train again. He catches it really well. Like, he could have been completely stunned and... 
you know, and thrown off the train completely, but no, he manages to hang on to it. And yeah. he falls back down, misses yeah. the train. Son, Son of, of a, a bitch. bitch. <laughs> That's a gut reaction, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's back to walking along the track. He manages to flag down a car, gets a lift into town, and um, to the sheriff's office, where we meet the idiot sheriff. Oh, God. Oliver. That character... Seriously, you couldn't have made more of a caricature, I think. I don't know, apart from Bob Sweet, maybe. But uh, I really didn't. I didn't like that scene at all. I thought it was ridiculous. Well, it's um, it's Clifton James who'd been in a couple of James Bond films as a idiot Southern sheriff type. Oh, he works that well. <laughs> um, but in in those two films, his character is just kind of a a buffoon. But here, he seemed to have like the mind of a child. Mm, completely just like watching TV with a as you say like a western show on and getting involved in the whole cowboys and Indians thing how do you get that far in life with so little common sense I don't know well I think the suggestion is that it's a small town midwestern yeah there's there's very little crime they said they never never really had a murder here Mm. Um, and George starts telling what's happened and the show's right okay I said, oh, right, so this idiot is actually going to be helpful. Great. Um, even though the story is completely crazy. And he yeah. starts telling him about the Rembrandt. I said, okay, right, so, so who killed Rembrandt? So, yeah, who's so, Rembrandt? So what about this guy Rembrandt? I said, yeah. so Rembrandt? Rembrandt's dead. So, it's a so, so how many people have yeah. been killed then? <laughs> and that's when you're thinking you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but it's, it, it's not... Um, Surprising that the the sheriff doesn't know who Rembrandt is. Yeah. He gets a phone call about something because clearly Bob Sweet's body's been found. Mm-hmm. He, and he pulls out his gun and says, "Right, hands up." <laughs> and as as we mentioned, George, George just grabs the gun out of his hand. Give me that. Yeah. So, so and, but it's quite bold in a way, right? I think by this point, he George is just fed up with having to deal with people. <laughs> so, but it seems too easy as well. Once again, I'm like... Yeah, and also when they're t- almost dancing around the desk because the sheriff is just trying to get hold of his gun, which is on top of the TV. Yeah. And he left his gun on the side because he needed to answer the phone call. And when he comes back, he sees that the supposedly murderer is in the room mm. with, the, with his gun. And he's thinking, I need to get to that gun before the murderer, George, gets to the gun first. And there's this silly dancing scene around the desk, pretty much. And I'm thinking, this is so goofy. I, I don't know. I didn't. I like. It. I like it because <laughs> you've got you've got George who's trying to be serious and convincing, and you've got the sheriff who's just trying to politely humour him whilst edge across the room. So you've got the the two characters playing completely different scenes at the, towards each other at the same time. But I've got I've got the line here when George grabs the gun. And the sheriff immediately says, oh, don't shoot. You stupid, ignorant, son of a bitch, dumb bastard. Jesus Christ, I've met some dumb bastards in my time, but you outdo them all. (laughs) He does. That's still right. That's the Gene Wilder people recognise. The one who's getting really really? over the top and and, and overexcited. That's a good line. He screams better in exasperation than any actor I've ever seen. (laughs) Who wouldn't be exasperated he's, by a sheriff like that as well? He, he's, he's amazing in The Producers. Okay. 
Have you have you ever no, seen? No, I haven't. No. Do you know what the plot is? Um, I think I no. It's probably not the one I'm thinking about. Go ahead. What do you think it is? I think it's the film pro- the film producers, right? No, okay. not, it has nothing to do with that. Okay. Um, it's about a a stage producer whose books are being audited by an accountant. And the accountant is played by Gene Wilder, and he comes up with the idea that if you were to raise five times as much money as you needed for a play, and the play was a complete disaster. No one, none of the investors would expect to get their money back, so you could just keep all the money. Okay. And they think, oh, quite, this is a fantastic idea for a, a criminal scam. Uh-huh. And they decide to find the worst play possible and cast the worst actor. And the play they end up with is a lovely, cheery musical about Hitler. <gasps> oh, yeah. Springtime for Hitler. Great. And it's this really zany, over-the-top comedy that was, at the time was very near the knuckle because it was the late 60s and they okay. were making jokes about Hitler. Okay. And they got away with it because almost everyone working on the movie was Jewish. Okay. So it's kind of, that's fine. Okay, that's fine, yeah, yeah. But Gene Wilder well, is, is fantastic as this very tightly wound accountant who gradually becomes more and more sort of confident and, okay. and the relationship between him and the other producer goes from to quite dominating into being really close friends and it's a really wonderful film and incredibly funny especially if Gene Wilder gets really angry I might watch it I don't know. I'll see I'll let you know have you seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory uh, only the most recent one Oh, the original's wonderful. Okay. Because he plays Willy Wonka. Ah, I can see. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, okay. Um, I, pi- I, I picture the poster now. And he sings, and he's, he's quite a good singer. He's good enough. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a scene towards the end, if, if you're familiar with the story, where um, uh, Charlie is told that he doesn't get to win anything because he interfered. And Wonka says, No, you win nothing. Get out. And... The switch from this sort of magical yeah. wonder to being really angry and yelling at a child. And he plays it totally seriously. It's really shocking and startling. And Charlie's sent away, but he has this little this special suite that, he's, that he was supposed to take to give to an enemy to, uh, chocolate maker. But he leaves it behind and just puts it on the edge oh. of Wonka's desk. And you don't see Wilder's face, you just see his hand gently reach out and put it over the suite and that was like the secret test of character that he could send Charlie away like that but Charlie would still not betray Wonka Mm. and he says Charlie you won you won (laughs) and it's and it's the happy ending and that whole scene is amazing he just goes from being this magical wizard to being this really angry figure and then Reveal that this delight that he was. That oh, he was I, I guess I'd probably like that much more than the producers. I don't know. I'll, I need to check. I'll check it out. They're One both, or the they're other. Both Gene Wilder was a a, a a great actor and a much loved performer because he had a, a real human warmth to him, mm-hmm. and he would regularly just rewrite scripts of his own films because he was a better writer than a lot of the writers. Oh yeah. <laughs> working on. So did he participate into the script writing of this? I think he might have had a hand. Uh, Colin Higgins um, had been quite a successful writer on his own. He wrote Harold and Maud. 
Okay. Which was a hugely acclaimed film a few years earlier. But he quite liked the idea of just writing a, a classic style suspense movie. It's like, you know, you know the, these things make money and it yeah. sounds like fun to do. Why not? And he, um, he had the idea of, you know, I always, I always dreamt of, you know, getting onto a train and meeting a beautiful blonde and getting into an adventure. And that was just, <laughs> yeah, I'd just write a movie about that. <laughs> Start of the plot. And a few years later, he wrote uh, a film called Foul Play, which was Chevy Chase's first film okay. as a star. And it's, again, it's another kind of modern Alfred Hitchcock-style adventure okay. about a woman who gets involved with a plot to assassinate the Pope. And, oh, there's wow. lo- and there's lots, of, and it's mainly a comedy, but with lots of thriller elements as well. Mm-hmm. And it really feels like a kind of a, a sibling to Silver Streak. Okay, you can see uh, that there's the same. Yeah, it's it's a very similar style. Okay, like the the threat is real, but there's a lot of comedy. Okay, and it also has a, a very popular comedian introduced well over halfway through the film. A bit like here when you think about it. Yeah, because that has Dudley Moore show up at the end. Okay. Uh, and it was Dudley Moore's first American role. And this, and Richard Pryor doesn't turn up in Silver Street until the film is over halfway through. Completely, yeah. I thought they were supposed to be like uh, the magical duo. And actually, there's not a lot of scenes when they are together, if you think about the whole movie. No, I mean, once, once he's introduced, Grover spends almost all his screen time with George. Mm. But, yeah, I, I checked, and he doesn't turn up until the film is a full hour in. Oh, wow, okay. And how long is it? An hour, 45? It's about an hour, about an hour 50. Okay, yeah. Uh, Oliver's nephew, who's the deputy, turns up. Oh, yeah. And the dumb guy. He's a complete idiot. Yeah, who thought um, that the, we thought that the sheriff was so stupid, but then you <laughs> hadn't met his nephew. <laughs> yes, the, the gene pool's been even further watered down. Um... <laughs> And George steals his police car, drives off, and as he's driving out of town, suddenly a man sits up in the back seat. There's a thief in the back. <laughs> Hello. And uh, yeah, it's it's Grover, who is a thief who's been arrested. And we don't know what he's what he's uh, stolen though. We never know, do we? I get the impression that a um, car? even uh, even yeah, he's he's a thief, and he acknowledges that he's a thief. But I get the feeling that maybe he's been picked up specifically because he's black. Okay. Probably. And a black guy in a small Midwestern town with a moron for a sheriff is never going <laughs> to sleep too although, well at night. Although he does introduce himself as a thief, as if he was like his daily job. You know? <laughs> so I, that's what what he... are you doing here? Oh, I'm a thief. Okay, fine. As if you could say, oh, I'm a salesman. If, you know, I don't know. Well, I mean, he's talking to someone who's just held up the sheriff and stolen a police car, so he's clearly... And who turned out to be a murderer. Yes, yes. Oh, you can, you can just let me out over here. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, don't de- I don't deal with the big M. Um, but no, he's not let on the side. Definitely not. No. George explains the situation, and Grover is sympathetic. He is. Yeah, definitely. He's thinking, oh, okay, that guy is, is really into deep trouble. There's a lady involved. I'm going to... Maybe he's a romantic as well. Yeah, because this is, this is this is a guy who's in real trouble and things could get really bad. Mm. And I'm already on the run from the law. How how much worse is it going to get? And he wants a bit of fun as well because when they're going through the police cars, you know, when the the, the police cars oh, yes. are trying to stop him, um, to stop them, sorry, 
and they're in the middle of the road is that he's so into it that he thinks it's going to be so much fun if they actually go through um, the barriers of the police cars and they do and they do and he's, he finds it really thrilling so I think he's just he's there to help George because he thinks George is in trouble but also he really wants a bit of fun yeah a bit of uh, adrenaline maybe that's why he's a thief because he, uh, he, yeah. he loves the thrill of maybe yeah. having to escape and get caught. Yeah. Um, Richard Pryor was quite a dicey choice for this role. He was, what does that mean, dicey? Um, risky. Okay. Uh, like when you're playing dice. Oh, yeah. Um, because he'd already made his name as a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And then after a few years, he switched from making quite... Uh, safe but kind of modern material as a uh-huh. comedian to very edgy very confrontational material and talking more about his background because he'd grown up in a brothel oh wow his mother, I think his mother was a prostitute I mean really just incredibly okay. uh, uh, extraordinary background and um, he had co-written Blazing Saddles mm-hmm. and was originally going to play the lead in that as the ex-slave appointed sheriff of a town to try and drive out the locals. Okay. But he, he, he was felt to be so contentious, a, a, uh, an actor, that the studio wouldn't support him. Even though cast. he wrote the... Even though he wrote the script. And Mel Brooks was yeah. very happy to say, yes, he's great, so I, you know, I support him 100%. But the studio wouldn't go for it. So Cleveland Little was cast in his place. But on this, by this point, it was felt that Pryor was safe enough that they could cast him in this. But in a way, he's not responsible for his background. I don't know. No. And but, it's quite brave to talk about it, probably. But he was he was so well known for talking about this and being very open about this as a comedian, uh, talking about subjects that were never addressed. Mm. Um, and you probably don't want that to be associated with a, a, a comedy adventure. Exactly, yeah. And it, it's amazing to think that he went on to have this kind of odd dual career of being in a whole string of successful comedies he was in a Superman movie mm-hmm. but also you know he would you know, talk about race and his drug addictions okay. as, a, as a stand-up comedian to huge sell-out audiences and um, he, had a, he had a terrible accident in the 80s where he was freebasing cocaine okay. and set his head on fire Oh shit! and he, oh. Almost, and he almost died Oh, wow. He needed to stop that before. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, he would do a joke about saying, you know, he'd light a match and say, what's this? It's me running down the street. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so well, he, if he's he would, one he would of... just turn it, he would just turn all his, yeah, I guess all his problems into jokes. Yeah, I guess comedians are good at, right? Yeah. Um, not everybody can do that. Uh, take some guts. He was, he was an amazing performer and... His his what did what did you think of his chemistry with Rich with uh, Gene Wilder? Um, I probably we didn't see any a, a lot of it. Um, it comes not as a surprise because you can see that they're both in trouble, so you can see why two characters like that would support each other. But um, you know, from what in the duo of actors themselves, I thought they were all right. All really, right. I didn't think it was anything special. They did go on to make another three films together. Yeah, that's what I read, yeah. But that's what I was thinking. They were supposed to be this magical duo, but actually I didn't think that 
there was a particular spark. Maybe maybe because so much had had happened to to the character before. Yeah. That um, it it doesn't feel like an equal partnership mm. in a way that in, it does in their other films, where yeah. they feel like equal stars. Okay. So they they break into a racker's yard to steal a car. Oh, a beautiful car, definitely. And um, the uh, the uh, the guard uh, uses the N word. Yeah, but it's been used before as well by the sheriff, right? I think no. I don't think so. Or it's been used somewhere else. It is used somewhere. Devereux uses it later on. Mm. And. Um, yeah, Richard Pryor didn't like that. No wonder. He was, he was very... I mean, years later, he would um, visit Africa mm-hmm. and visited Kenya and actually had a, a look at uh, places where his ancestors came from. And mm-hmm. after that, he swore off using the N-word in his own stand-up material okay. because he became more aware of historical material and, and connotations. But even at this point, I think the idea of someone saying that to Richard Pryor's you're gonna. You know, you, 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 I'm you, you better make sure he's okay with this. I mean, I know that times have changed, and and you know the the terminology of it has changed as well. And but I'm thinking, surely, in the seventies, it was unacceptable, right? No, but it doesn't seem like it. It's in the context of the film, it's shown to be unacceptable because we've all, we've got to know Grover. We like him. And the two characters who use the N-word are both portrayed as being unequivocally bad people. Mm. So I think in context it's okay. But the fact that it's it's still sort of felt to be okay to use in a film, yeah. even given this context. And the film is rated PG, by the way. Is it? I thought it was yep. 12. No, no, it's a PG. Oh, yeah. Does oh, yeah, have, you're right, yeah. Does it have a... Oh, maybe at the back. What does it say at the back? It says it contains mild language. Oh. And a mild sex scene. No, it's not a sex oh, scene. Oh, no. Uh, well, <laughs> no. Sex references, sex but it's, yeah. yeah. There's a bit of kissing and cuddling, and they've got all their clothes on. Yes, yeah, so. true. <laughs> and talking about gardening. Oh, yeah. Um, but now coming back to that, that scene where there's still a car, and, and the guy is using the N-word, I was really shocked, actually. I didn't think that this was going to happen. Um, and and it's you're thinking, it's... That guy is stealing your car. That's why you should be angry. You shouldn't be angry because he's black. And for me, that was completely unnecessary. Well, I know someone who would assume that he's stealing the car because he's black, because that's what black people do. <laughs> but then he's just uh, being thrown on the floor by a white guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah George, the one with a gun, actually. George, George, <laughs> no- George knocks him out, and Grover is quite impressed. I know. But once again, that scene is just so... There's no... Uh, there's no tension. You don't know that, that George is going to do that. Obviously, he comes out of the blue and then it's over in like two seconds. And then they, they go away with the car and you, you don't even see the guy on the floor. And But it's it's maybe the tension of how, how are they going to get out of this because the guard's got a shotgun. Yeah, I didn't feel it threatening. Maybe because I was so shocked by, by, the, di- by the lines of dialogue oh, okay. that I didn't think uh, you know anything else of it. But... Uh... It, it's so quickly over. Um, yeah, they get away with it quite quickly. <laughs> they drive through the night, and there's a there's a beautiful shot of them just driving across the desert as the dawn comes up. Mm, and then with the, Grover um, wakes up and he feels almost happy. 
Yeah. Didn't you get that feeling as well that he was happy to be in that stolen car with a a supposed murderer? He he didn't feel um, not at ease. Well, maybe he's got a purpose in his life for the first time in a while. He's 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 doing a good thing. <laughs> he felt relaxed. They're going for the train. They really want to get that train. Yeah, they, have, they? they have to intercept the train in St. Louis. Mm. Um, Hence, that's why they, they stole the car, obviously, because it's a better car than the police car, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I, I really like that scene where you you just have the um, the the romance theme in the background as. George says that he's worried about whether or not Hilly's still alive. And it's, I just like how it's underplayed. And very mellow. Yeah, it's like, it could have been really kind of, oh, oh, got to get there so fast, but no, it's just, they're going as fast as they can, they can't do anything else. And Grover's really sympathetic and tries to reassure him, because now they're partners in crime. They are. They can't be without one another. They're both running away. Yeah. Um, and they get to the station. They've got maybe ten minutes. They need to get tickets. But they need to get tickets. But the cops are after George, and there's pictures on the front page of the newspaper. Oh, and it's his driving license. I like that line where he says, "That's my driving license picture. I don't like it." <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, "Is that what you're worried about? That they've used a picture of you that you don't like? <laughs> no, you're wanted for murder. If I were you, we'd worry about this." I like that just as a little comic edge. That, yeah, yeah, that, I did. Not, not only are they after him, they're using a picture of him that he doesn't like. Yeah, I would. Yeah, if they used my driving license picture, I would be worried. It doesn't look like me. I don't have a driving license. All right, I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, you can kill whoever you want. My my passport picture barely looks like me anymore. Oh, okay, so that's you. You can get away with it. Yeah. All right. Oh boy, I was trying to think of all the people I want to kill. Um, so Grover comes up with a scheme. They go to a, a shoe shine stand and they buy the hat, radio, and shoe polish. Oh, that was so embarrassing. Them. And uh, Grover insists that George pay for everything. So they go to the bathroom and then George starts blacking up. Yep. Well, that's a note that I have. Is this inappropriate? Because in context, Neither of them are really that comfortable with it, but they both know that there's no way around it. There could have been another way around it. I think the scenario got it completely wrong there. I didn't buy in. I didn't like it. I thought that was really embarrassing. It's so so much of a caricature. I know it's a it's supposed to be a, a humorous movie, so you play on you know. Um, you play yeah. on expectation versus reality. But this one, no, I didn't like it at all. And the beanie hat, and you've got to move with the rhythm. Oh God, seriously! But, but the the joke is that they that all the cops are white, so all he's got to do is just conform to what white people expect black people to behave like. Mm. Well, that's the thing; they don't behave like this necessarily. Not and in real life, no. But it's it's the white cops think, oh yeah, that's a black guy oh. there with with his hat and his dancing. And then when Grover says as well, oh, it's okay. We just need to fool the 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 white cops or the cops. Uh, as long as no Muslims see you, I'm thinking, what? So all blacks are Muslims, or all Muslims are... Oh, God. In context, at that time, Muslims were mostly, like, Nation of Islam, African-American converts, mm. rather than Middle Eastern people. 
Um, so but it's, even so, like they could be black and non-Muslim. I don't know. I, I... But they're also at the time far more likely to be very, very angry with someone who blacked up in public. I would have been definitely. I don't know. I, I felt really more than just uncomfortable. You know, I felt I felt like this was not. They couldn't do that. I just felt a bit angry that they they thought that they could do this in a film. At the time, this was. I mean, it's like. Yeah, of you, course. You, yeah, you've you got to say, say things in their context. You could right. say the N word as long as it was justified by the context. In in the case it is in this film, and you could have a character blacking up if it's part of something that makes sense. He's got to get past some white police officers, so he pretends to be black. But a black person is helping him, and a black person comes up with the idea in the first place. And it's Richard Pryor, particularly, who's very vocal about African-American so how heritage. So how did he feel about that, then? The, the, the blacking up sequence, he did not have a problem with. Really? It was, it was perfectly fine and justified by the, by the story. But the scene where a black man comes in and isn't convinced was originally different. Originally, it was a white man coming in, and he did think that okay. he was black. And Pryor said, if that's in the script, I'm going. Mm. And, he, and he walked off until it was changed. Okay. Interesting. I think it's the shoeshine guy who comes in and, and looks, looks at George and thinks, no, you've got to dance more like this. <laughs> and oh. immediately just starts helping him. I thought it was so embarrassing. I didn't like it at all. Sorry, that was really lo- a low point for me in the film. I should have probably skipped that scene. Well, no, you have to watch the whole thing. Oh, yeah, I did, and I did. But um, they walk through the station with George really playing up over the top with the, the radio neck to his ear and snapping his fingers <laughs> and dancing. And, and he and Grover have switched jackets as well because Grover was wearing like a purple baseball jacket mm-hmm. and he switched it for George's suit jacket. And so Grover's looking quite respectable, jacket and, jacket and trousers, and he's just looking at George with barely concealed horror at this this caricature yeah. <laughs> and I think then that again makes it okay that here it's, it's a black man and it's Richard Pryor saying this is ridiculous and under under almost any other situation would be totally unacceptable he looks ashamed don't you think he looks shocked and, sh- and, yeah. and ashamed yeah I think it's maybe, maybe Grover didn't know how far George was going to go with oh. this or how, how much he was going to throw himself into it but they get they get past the cops. I guess it serves a purpose. And then I think the, one of the cops say we're we look no Grover is saying oh you're looking for a white guy. They said oh so who are you looking for? I said oh the white guy. So oh, well, well if I see one I'll tell you. Yeah, I thought that was that was the, that was the, in a way that was the best in that scene for me when he said that line. If I see one I tell you. Uh, they get back onto the train. Yeah, they do. And. George's compartment has been completely cleared out. Uh, they get back on the train with tickets. So with, they're, they're within the law. Yeah. I like that as well. It's like, you've done so many wrong things, but you're still buying train tickets. Well, they wouldn't have been able to get onto the platform without it, I suppose. But they managed to get on the train earlier on by just jumping on it, so why not for a second time? Or a third time? Uh, yeah. I thought it, it was... Um, out of line for those characters who went so far as to steal a car and everything, but they still want to get a ticket, you know, to get on it. Yes, I suppose so. But um, 
maybe it was to introduce that scene of you know blacking out. If they were trying to get onto the train without causing any disruption, because earlier on they had to steal a car because how else are they going to get there? Yeah. Whereas once they get to the station, they don't want to attract any uh, unnecessary attention. So it's like, okay, we'll get tickets, we'll go through the ticket barrier, we'll just play everything cool. I'll I'll be blacked up, but that's okay. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> but the, yeah, you they they get on the train. They manage to. George gives Grover the gun, and Grover says, "Okay, now give me your wallet." Oh yeah. And there's a moment you think, "What?" That's because I got a bribe reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, as you said, they've they've cleared everything out apart from the radio. Yeah, they're so good like that. <laughs> Hilly said, no, no, you have to leave the radio. Um, and George is knocked out by Mr. Whiny. Oh, yeah. That was a bit, uh, that was a bit strange, that he, he went cold so quickly. Just one blow, poof, like this, that's it. That's a movie. That's a movie, yeah. Once again, you're like, oh, okay, no struggle. Okay, take it for granted that something is, is going to happen to him. When uh, he wakes up, Hilly tells him that she was cooperative trying to protect him. Yeah. And, uh, he's touched. And he's touched, and he, and he tells her that he missed her. Yeah. <laughs> Whilst um, Devereaux is having his breakfast <laughs> with his marmalade. Oh, do, do have some of your marmalade. Yeah, beautiful marmalade on that oh, train. Come in, sit down. <laughs> and he, he explains the whole thing. And, um, George brags about killing Reese as well. And that's, an, that's sort of an interesting shift I think from his attitude earlier I think maybe he's I can't remember that maybe he's doing it to to, to show that he's equally to show that he's, that he can be not trusted or that he can be feared as well yeah that, that he can be tough and that he's not mm. a he's not a pushover the way Devereux thinks he might be yeah um, but the the plan is to frame George as the murderer um, after the uh, after he tried to blackmail the professor and that Hilly and George then shot each other oh, yeah. over a quarrel. Hilly doesn't seem phased out. She's like, okay, yeah, I'm buying into this. Okay. I mean, she doesn't agree necessarily, but there's no uh, protest. Well, she doesn't know what to do. I mean, she, I mean, it seems like Devereux holds all the cards. He's got George at gunpoint, and George might be you know, not taking it in his stride, not mm. exactly rolling over, but there's nothing he can do. Hey, but Grover saves the but day. Then Grover comes in wearing a porter's uniform, and he's really sort of. <laughs> it's it's like, um, Pryor just came up with like a, a funny character. Hey, why don't I just like play like an annoying waiter character? He is really annoying, yeah. And he does everything kind of just be really annoying. Yeah. And <laughs> with with George as his audience just sitting there, arms folded, smiling at, at Grover's antics. It. Yeah. Enjoying it. Healy's a bit confused because he doesn't know, obviously, that Grover yeah. it has been, you know, driving the car with, with George as, and yeah, as, come as to far, rescue her as well. As far as she knows, he's just he's just another one of the porters. Exactly, yeah. Um, but it gets to the point where he's pouring uh, tea into Devereux's lap and Devereux calls him, oh, you stupid yeah. N-word. At which point, Grover pulls out a gun and says, what did you say? <laughs> So is it his gun, or is it Devereux's gun? It's the gun they took 
I think it's the gun he got from Oliver. I think he's had it the whole time. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, yeah, the one that he take, the one that he points at George when they get on the train. Yeah. Okay. Because I was think because Devro's got a gun and he don't they don't take a take it away from him straight away, do they? No. Um, Mistake. They should have. And George tells Devro that the police are actually after him, that they know what's going on. Mm. Um, they go to the safe to get out the Rembrandt letters and there's a shootout and they immediately run out of bullets. Because yeah. as, as Grover says, this isn't a western. <laughs> Although the, the sound of the guns make it really sound like a western. Oh, well, they just... They would reuse the sound effects yeah. for decades. <laughs> but I, I think it's a little nod to Blazing Saddles. Oh, okay. Um, so, so they jump for it as the, the train goes over a bridge. They land in a river and once again, George says, Son of a bitch! And the police is waiting for them. Yeah. Handy. Devereux burns the letters. Oh, yeah, he disconnects all the alarm. Yes. And it says that they have to, yeah, have to, they're going to disconnect all the... Oh, the emergency uh, the, emer- the emergency brakes. Yeah, not the alarm, the emergency brakes, yeah. And that Devereux and Winnie will be lifted off the train by helicopter. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the ending of the film becomes a bit obvious. Where if all the emergency brakes have been disconnected... Mm-hmm. Right, so the train won't be able to stop. Yep. Um, George and Grover are taken to the feds. And it turns out that they know George is innocent. Yeah. And that the, the story, they knew the, story it all the, time. the story was planted in the papers so that they could actually get hold of him and mm. talk to him. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're going to stop the train. And Grover says, Grover's still in the persona of the waiters. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, thank, oh, thank you, heaven for you. Oh, could you could you give me a lift back to St. Louis, please? Oh, sure, sure. Oh, oh thank you so much. I need to pick up the jag. And they have a, a little goodbye. They do, yeah. It feels quite emotional. Yeah. But what I don't like in that scene, though, is it's the fact that the feds just give George a gun like this. He's a civilian. Yeah, that does feel a bit odd that it's, they just hand him a gun. I know. And, and extra bullets as well, just in case. You know, he's not... He's not they're supposed to protect George, not involve him more. <laughs> well, obviously, there wouldn't be any plot left. As uh, they as he drives away, Grover says, like, "Yeah, take it easy, killer. <laughs> Stay loose." <laughs> um, so the train's going to be evacuated, and it's been stopped. And uh, the porter finds that <coughs> finds uh, Devereux you know, start getting all his guns ready, and it turns into a huge gunfight. I know it does, but it works well. I think those scenes work well. Yeah. And at this point, I was starting to think, what, what is Devereux's motivation? Because he's not going to get away with this. <laughs> well, if he's got a helicopter waiting for him somewhere, he's probably going to, you know, fly away. But the cops know that, you know, that he's a bad man and mm-hmm. that he's wanted for all these things. And yet he's planning to escape. And I think, is it, is it just money? Is he just after money? Is that... Ooh. I think he's desperate, desperate to escape the law. But where would he go? Because he's wanted everywhere. Well, Canada's quite close. <laughs> I mean, it's literally out of the window. <laughs> but I mean, he's so it's just all for his art theft, and it's it's got to the point where he's he doesn't murdering want to, people. He to doesn't cover want to lose face, so he's just uh, playing it until the end. 
But he even kills, and that's when you see he's a cold-hearted bastard, he even kills his associate, or his... Is it Whiny? Whiny, yeah. Yeah, he even kills him, or not not necessarily kills him, but doesn't help him back on the train and just steps on his hand while Whiny is trying oh, yeah. to get hold of the of the train. And that's that's a real buddy when you're thinking you're getting rid of the people who can help you and actually protect you. And I did wonder, as he's commandeering the train, what is the next stage of his plan? I don't think he has one. Is, is he Everything's out of control for is, him is now. He, is he planning to drive the train to Cuba? It's on the other side. <laughs> he's heading in the wrong direction. Head south, not north. And across, and the, and, yeah. and across the sea. Yeah. <laughs> Um, George and Grover manage to climb onto the train and um, yes, there's, there's the big fight and there's the, the being chased by helicopters. And Hilly is still on the train as and well. He, and Hilly's still there as well. Mm. Oh, it's, it's terribly exciting. Um, Devereaux shoots the train drivers and puts a, a toolbox on the on the accelerator. On the and yeah, <laughs> trains don't work like that. I know. But okay. I thought that was quite fun. I'm thinking, is that simple? Is that the is that the only simple way to do it for, for the for the sake of the plot, probably, right? Trains that have like accelerators and brakes like that. They the, the dead man's switch. So oh. that they can't so that you can't have runaway trains like that. Mm. Um, and then the 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 how do you call that? The the guys in Chicago in sort of in charge of the station. They are being told by the feds that a runaway train is coming their way and they need to evacuate it. And that incompetent assistant doesn't know what to do. And he's like, I'm only the assistant. I can't help you with this. Well, it's, it's another sort of surprising actor there. It's Fred Willard, who go on to be a very highly regarded comedy actor. Oh, really? Yeah. He has like three minutes. Yeah. It's he's a, got some lines, it's though. A, it's, a, it's a tiny little role, but it's mm. sort of, it fits his kind of image of being a slightly goofy type. Okay. But uh, Devereaux gets shot by the cops and falls partly out of the door, just as a train's coming the other way. Yeah, yeah. And, oh god! And, and we don't we don't see anything, but uh, he's beheaded by a passing train. Yeah, and probably if... because Hilly says Hilly immediately after that is asking what happened, and George tells her, you know, as a brave hero, don't let the damsel look at the distressing scene. Well, it. You get the impression that George saw it and he's been yeah. pretty repulsed by it. But, or uh, probably felt the shock, I don't know, because they were quite close. They, they are in the next carriage, yeah, right? Yeah, they're, they're, the, they're in the dining car. Mm. Uh, live by the train, die by the train. <laughs> Is that the motto of the film? Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's not finished, it's even still though the buddy is the gone. Bad, the bad guy's defeated, but uh, now the... Now the train's run away and, yeah. it's, and, and it's now a disaster movie. And uh, they, uh, they manage to uncouple the cars just in time. And, and they don't know that there's no driver. And they don't know there's no driver. So we know something more than them at that stage. And I think that's quite good as well because we can see their desperation and, and their complete ignorance of something we know. Yeah. I quite like that. And the uh, different angle. The bit where George has to uncouple the train car is he has to then leap back from the, the 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 front to the rear car. But I quite like that scene. And, and that's that was quite an impressive stunt, I think. I liked it. I thought I I really bought into that. I was thinking, is he going to manage? What's going to happen? Is he going to lose his belt? Is is Grover Gro- going to just slip? 
Is Hilly not going to manage to catch him back? I don't know. Um, and um, as, as the uh, front of the train zooms off and smashes through the front of, yeah, of the, the station. railway station. Yeah. And even knocks the little sports car off its display stand. <laughs> handy. Yeah. Very handy. Again, I remember seeing that thinking, why is there a sports car there? Uh-huh. Everything's linked. It's, there's a purpose to every little uh, car along the way. Um, the, the rear cars gently coast into the station. And uh, Hilly, Grover and George get out. And they, look, and they come to get to see the front of the train. And George says... It looks like it's grinning. Yeah, no, I thought that was a bit pointless, that one. I'm thinking, would you say this? I think maybe they just looked at the prop and thought... It looks it like does, it's grinning. It does grinning. look like it's grinning. <laughs> and uh, they look around, Grover's gone, and then it turns out that he's driving away in the sports car. Nobody seems to be worried about Devro's body, or even the professor's body along that way. You know, or even Reese's body. We don't know about it. There's been like three murders along the way and, and everybody's driving away in a car happily ever after, you know? <laughs> yeah, everyone just leaves. Yeah, it's like, hey, bye, okay, fine. Um, but, uh, yes, Hilly suggests that she and George could go to the park and <laughs> she can, he can teach her a bit more about gardening. Oh, God. Because, uh, uh, because I we never said what George does for a living. He's an editor. He's an editor and he works in non-fiction books like how-to manuals and gardening. Mm-hmm. And when they're uh, getting all kissing and cuddling in his cabin, uh, he talks about gardening in a in a very sort of sexy way. I know the metaphors are beautiful, and so she wants to know more about gardening. Sure. And yeah, it ends with them sort of walking away from the huge wreckage of <laughs> the remains of Chicago Station. And they're yeah, just happily walking away. Nobody's asking them anything. They're just going to go into a park. It's a movie. I know, but. Um, yeah, it is. It yeah, it's a. I, how else could they have ended it? I've written that it's it's a quintessential seventies film. Um, it's got unlikely stars of the decade. It's got a near the knuckle comedian, and a leading man who could look less like a leading man. <laughs> um, it's it follows sort of styles of genre. It harks back to classic cinema, and I think it stands as a very fine thriller with elements of comedy and romance and action. Have I at all influenced your opinion? Uh, for the overall movie, maybe not, because I still didn't necessarily enjoy it. But I like talking about it with you because there are things I didn't know that I've learned and that puts things in perspective as well. But I don't think I'll probably going to watch another one of those. I don't know. One of, one of the other... Yeah, maybe the producers, like you were talking about this yeah. one. I'm going to give it a try. But if they're all like this, when you say it's quintessential 70s, I'm well, the, not the producers, sure I want to try well, another one. The producers is very different. Oh, I mean, okay. the, this, uh, the Silver Streak is definitely meant as like a big entertainment picture. Mm-hmm. The producers is a very weird, near-the-knuckle comedy. Okay. Um, Blazing Saddles is much crazier and zanier. Okay. Um, Willy Wonka's children's film. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though Prior and Wilder made more films together, and I would say that Silver Streak is easily the best of, of the four that they did. I haven't seen the last one, to be honest, but I don't think anyone else has either. Um, they would be much more sort of commercial. 
and Wilder, even though he'd moved into directing, he never really did anything that was on a par with his previous work. This was the okay. start of him as actually being a major bankable name rather than mm-hmm. a, a character actor and filmmaker. I guess it's hard for if you're if you're trained in classical drama or if you're trained as a as a to to act in theatres to actually get that you know become a, a star a movie star yeah. for entertain for entertainment mm-hmm. as well for yourself there probably there's probably not a lot of actors who who do that transition well mm-hmm. and who want to do that transition just because they they don't want to be seen as entertainers they want to be seen as serious actors so credit to him for you know jumping um, to the other side in a way in the entertainment side they made their last film together in 1991 okay it's called another you and it was a critical and commercial disaster <gasps> after which um, both effectively retired from uh, from films oh so they didn't end on a high note unfortunately not no gene wilder did some work in television mm. Uh, he wrote his autobiography, wrote several novels, sadly died a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, Richard Pryor made one final film, David Lynch's Lost Highway. <gasps> it's so weird that his last one would be a David Lynch really? film. Really? He's in it? I can't yep. remember. He is uh, the owner of the garage. I've got to watch that again. Uh, he's only in one scene and he's in a wheelchair. He was suffering from uh, multiple sclerosis okay. and was quite severely disabled towards the end of his life. Mm. Um, with all that drug, even even with all the drugs, like he could. I'm kidding. Sorry. I'm not. I'm not sure the drugs helped. <laughs> um, with the pain. But um, they both left a, a remarkable legacy. Um, in film and on stage. Um, and I'll, I wouldn't say that this is individually their best work, and I know you you disagree, but I think <laughs> that it's a good representation of perhaps their general skills. Well, if you enjoyed it, that's good, right? It was completely different from, from the previous film as well that we talked about. It's quite different from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, um, yeah. I mean, the themes, the, the seriousness behind it, the portraying of, of uh, what it is to be different. Um, but this film too is about uh, also a, a close relationship between two men. Yeah, yeah it is. In a completely different way. Hmm. So maybe the two films have more in common than we thought. (laughs) I'm not too sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Emmanuel for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... Son of a bitch! been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.